Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody. It is Friday. Happy Friday. Uh, it is Friday. It's 1 o'clock on the West Coast, which can only mean one time. One thing. It is the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter, and with me, as always, is Carmen Nazario, the lovely Carmen Nazario. Thank you, Josh. Uh, Welcome, everyone. Happy Friday. Happy Friday and happy Veterans y- Weekend. Yeah, I was going to say, before I forget, happy Veterans Day, Carmen. Thank you for your service. Thank you, and happy Veterans Day to you and to our guests. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, you know, if you're unfamiliar with the show, uh, let me catch you up. So uh, every Friday we come on to the uh, Startup Founder Network, or the StartupRadioNetwork.com, and we bring in these amazing uh, guests that talk about their uh, past in uh, entrepreneurship as well as how it relates to their military experience. And this week we have uh, Tonio DiSorrento of Vimo. Welcome, sir. Welcome, Tonio. Thank you. Yeah, we are excited. You are a Marine veteran, and we're going to get all of, into the story of Tonio here in a moment, as well as the story of Vimo Education and how you came up with the idea and, and why it even exists and why it's important, et cetera, et cetera. Sound good? That sounds great. And as we talk about days, it's Veteran Day, Veterans Day weekend, but, you know, tomorrow is my birthday. Oh, my birthday tomorrow. Happy all the Marines, birthday. Yeah, happy to all birthday. the Marines listening, uh, an early happy birthday. Yeah, exactly. Well, happy birthday to you, sir. Another trip around the sun successfully. Congratulations. Congratulations, yes. And and we like to start out by asking you uh, where you're from and, uh, you know, what led you into the military. Sure, Carmen. So, um, from upstate New York, near southern Vermont, between Albany and Vermont, a town called Scaticoke. Nice. Rural. Got to work on a dairy farm, and uh, not near any military bases at the time. Okay. However, my family had a tradition of service. My father had served in the Marine Corps and loved his time when he was in. My mother's father had served in the Navy. I was a career naval officer, and... Um, my father's side, his brother had served in the Marine Corps, his father and uncles had been in the Army and Navy. And so I knew a lot of people who had um, served in the military. And I thought, as much as my dad loved his time in the Marines, I really wanted to try that. Now, I also really wanted to go to college. And so during high school, I worked at getting accepted to the Naval Academy, which worked out for me. So I attended the Naval Academy after high school in Annapolis. And was able to commission into the Marines. So I chose, and I chose the Naval Academy, I should say, over other colleges or West Point um, because that's where you can be a Marine Corps officer. And, and I, it meant a lot to me to get to try that. Nice. Nice. So, uh, you know, ba- back up a little bit and let's talk about what was the reasoning for you to, to join the Marine? Why, why the Marines? Well, again, yeah, my father and, you know, his friends when he was in, reminisced fondly about their time when they were in. I thought, boy, I would, I would appreciate having that experience too. You know, yeah. they all seem to love that 
they were Vietnam era veterans. Um, so I wanted that for myself, wanted that experience. And then as I got to the Naval Academy, I was able to, I, I had the experience of living and working with sailors and Marines mm-hmm. and Naval officers and Marine Corps officers. And I was drawn to the culture of the Marine Corps. So I think, you know, we all know that from a distance, the military is monolithic, but up close, the services have very distinct cultures and um, feel very foreign even. You know, if you're, if you're completely native to one, you can feel like a stranger in the other. And I, I felt at the time, at least, that I would be much happier in the Marine Corps service culture. How do you describe that culture? I, I'm an Army uh, veteran, and Josh is a Navy veteran, yeah. and so it'll be interesting to know uh, what is it about the culture that you like. Well, and I could put my foot in my mouth pretty hard on this one, right? Because I have to draw a contrast with other <laughs> other services. And um, I would say, though, that at that point in my life, I was a, bl- a very black and white person. I wanted to be challenged, but I'm not some kind of ninja. So, I, you know, I wanted the challenge of leading people and not necessarily um, equipment as much. I wanted to be, uh, and, and so I, I would say the Marine Corps at the time, you know, I've been out for a long time, you know, and, and in the meantime, everybody in the military is busy fighting wars that have been going on. And I didn't do that. But at the time, the Marine Corps was known for being fairly strict, fairly severe. Um, for officers having to take a lot of responsibility early in terms of the number of people we were leading, um, you know, for having a, a pretty strict rank pyramid. So it meant a lot to have leadership there. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, something a minute ago about, uh, you know, leading people and not equipment. And I think that's that's really important because a lot of people don't understand the difference between, say, you know, when you are when you go through the path of the, of the Navy, you have a department, but you're really uh, attached to, say, like a ship. So to your point, you're leading people, but the, the, uh, the objective is the overall success of this vessel, this thing. And so it's, it's a great distinction that you place there of, like, ver- leading people versus leading a thing, right? Yes. Or, and, or like a pilot, right? A, sure. a pilot has to steer something very special and expensive. Yeah. Uh, and, and they can affect a lot of people, right? But, yeah. But they're leading smaller groups. I would say that, you know, the joke was kind of on me because when I joined the Marine Corps, I was thinking, well, surely I will be paid to run around in the woods with my friends uh, in the infantry. (laughs) And I scored a little too high for my own good on the math and artillery, you know, observe fire portions of of my evaluations Mm -hmm. in the officer's school for Marines called the basic school. So they sent me to artillery school and I got put in charge of some gear. You know, <laughs> we, artillery has a lot of equipment, you know, so we talk about yeah. this, you know, you can't, you know, it's true. If you're on a ship, there's at least a, an O5, a commander level or lieutenant colonel level person, yep. you know, who's picking where you all go. You can't go somewhere on your own. Take your sailors and go the other way yep. uh, or split up. And in the Marine Corps, you know, infantry, absolutely squad and platoon level people sometimes uh, maneuver on their own. In the artillery, we move as batteries, and so it's a captain level or lieutenant in the Navy level uh, unit that moves and shoots. Sure. 
That makes sense. So, what? Describe your time. You know, we we talked a little bit on the phone about you know you and I had very similar experiences. Carmen had a similar experience where none of us really saw any you know action per se. Uh, but what was your experience like uh, in the Marines and and how? Uh, what was the decision for you uh, when you decided that's enough for me? I'm ready to get out. Well, I'll, I'll say first, I loved my time in the Marine Corps, and I loved all my fellow Marines, and I still love them. So. Marine Corps gave me the chance to be with people who I needed them. They needed me. We needed each other in our lives at that point. We were very young, kind of naive about the world. All of us didn't know about money, you know, the complexities of life, whatever. And, and uh, we got to really be ourselves. You know, never accepted as much as you are. Uh, as much as the Marine Corps is known for conformity, you don't, you know, lose your job or get demoted or outcast because you have a different view on something there. You're actually accepted for who you are wherever you're from. Um, everybody looks the same, wears the same clothes, gets the same pay, lives in the same building or neighborhood. And I love that I got to have that experience when I did. Um, I learned, I learned about, excuse me, I learned about myself, you know, um, discomfort and how to deal with extended discomfort. And I'm not talking, I mean, there's being uncomfortable speaking in front of people, but then there's like just walking for a really long time with heavy things in your back or arms right. or being cold for weeks straight. Yeah. Um, and in cold and wet. And I, I don't like being cold. Like I, I, I really don't <laughs> like being cold and it would just go on and on, you know, sometimes there. And so, um, I, I learned about myself there and I found that I, I not completely weak and I can bear up under that. I'm very blessed that I didn't have any combat, but we got to do some very realistic training. And, um, I found that was really exciting you know, and we, again, we got to test our limits. You know, how hard can we go? How how hard can we push this? How well can we perform? Um, you know, we formed real teams and did real teamwork. I think my time, I would characterize though initially, was disappointment. When I got artillery, I thought, geez, you know, I, want, I really wanted to be an infantry officer. The Marine Corps, speaking of the Marine Corps' culture, is very infantry-centric. Sure. You know, everybody in the Marine Corps knows we are there to support the infantry, our maneuver units. And... Um, they're the main effort. The rest of us are in support. Everybody in the Marine Corps embraces that, but I wanted to be the main effort guy. And I was assigned a support role, a support role that I loved. But initially, it grew to love, I should say. Initially, I was really sad about it, and I, I had to struggle with that. You know, It's also more technically difficult than a lot of other ground officer jobs in the Marine Corps. I'm right. sure it's not quite like being a pilot, but it's, it's more than being it's more technical with greater stakes than most Marine Corps officer ground jobs. As in, there are no blanks. We shoot explosives. They both real. If we miss, we're really fired. We might really kill people. Sure. <clears throat> Even in training. And so I had to um, work through that and uh, decide that it's embrace the role there and really grow where I was planted. And my reluctance to be an artillery officer you know, grew into like a love for artillery, but also later an appreciation for the need to grow where I was planted. And that popped up again in my career later. So, and, and maybe the most important lesson I learned in the Marine Corps. <clears throat> now, I, I, I would say um, I grew to love artillery enough that I actually became an artillery instructor. And it was at that point, as I was missing the Iraq invasion, that I started to think about what else could I do with myself? And, and this is maybe naive of me, but I and some others of my peers at the time thought, surely we have missed the war of our generation. You know, we did our best. We, we volunteered to serve. Here we are at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, 
well, Iraq is invaded. Looks like we missed it. So may as well move on. You know, uh, we had I had no concept or no idea that we could possibly be at war um, this many years later. And yeah. I, it's unfortunate that we are, but like I, I had no idea. So I, I thought, geez, I missed it. So what do I want to do when I grow up? You know, and I thought I was a captain in the Marine Corps, and, and that's not a super senior rank. But as you get promoted as an officer in the military, you move away from the does the Marines from the from the actual people who do so soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen move away from them and closer toward desk work and intermittent intermittent um, duties in command if you are a star. But I don't know if I, I don't know that I was a star and um, I, so I wasn't sitting there certain that I was going to be commanding Marines or leading Marines again. Sure. Um, if I stayed in, I was looking at ten years of desk jobs. Yeah, and I thought, man, if I'm going to get a desk job, I'm going to get a desk job that for which I am well trained. Not, you know, not going to be an officer, an artillery officer stuck on, you know, a paperwork job in the Marine Corps as some major, you know, hate yeah. my life. So I, I thought that would be important. I also found that, and this is this goes to the entrepreneur side of this, right? You're talking about startup founders in this podcast. Right, right. The Marine Corps is not known among the services for being bureaucratic. I will say that it is still the government and yeah. it is still kind of bureaucratic. And so I was chafing a little bit at that and I really wanted to pick. I found that, uh, look, I, I owed service. I, I did six and a half years active duty after the Naval Academy. I served my time and uh, that, that was a really fair trade. But I started to care a lot about where I lived, how I spent my time. And I felt like I'd earned that. And in the Marine Corps, you just don't ever get that thing. It's needs of the Marine Corps first, as it should be. So right. people who are selfish about what they do every day are really bad fits. And I was pretty insistent, you know, that the next thing I did, I was going to choose. So I thought about all the things I could do. I actually thought about being a JAG. I said, well, that's the best job that's in the Marine Corps. But I liked all the good Marines, and I really didn't like the few Marines I came across who were bad. Right. The only thing I liked about meeting a bad Marine is I could ship them off to a Jag. Like the, um, I didn't need to uh, deal with them. Somebody else would prosecute or defend sure. or whatever, dispose of that person. And um, I didn't, I didn't want to be the, the officer who only had to deal with bad Marines. Right. So, uh, and this was pre-financial crisis. So I went to law school. I, uh, I went to law school and studied to become a financial services attorney. That's awesome. We've been talking to Tony O.D. Sorrento. He's the co-founder and chief executive officer at Vemo Education. Uh, we're going to take a quick ad break. Is that cool? Yes. Cool. So we're going to talk about CPA Dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com forward slash startup radio. Tom Carmen and Josh sent you. Uh, so we're back. We're talking to Tonio DeSorrento of, uh, is it Vemo or Vimo? Vimo, Vimo Education. Vimo yep. Education, and uh, you know, we we're just talking about your transition out. You're talking about going to law school, and uh, you know, going through your LinkedIn page. You have uh, a few things that uh, you you worked on before you started your company. Talk about what was the what was the sort of the mindset of going into some of these roles that you went to because you you had this option of either going to JAG or going out in the private sector, and you went out into the private sector. Yes, that's right. So went to the private sector. Yeah. Go, yes, ahead, go ahead. No, 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 go for it. I was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, teaching our Army and Marine Corps artillery officers, artillery things. And on the weekends, I was reading about 
finance, 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 however you say that. I was reading about it. I was reading about securitization and structuring of things and how bonds worked. And it was fascinating to me. I thought to myself, the ingenuity that goes into these, the value created when you make capital more efficient for businesses and for people. Sure. I would love that job. And, uh, and heck, there's some math in it. I like math. You know, I, I, so I started to read about it. And what I actually found was, the, at the time at least, the culture of banking, investment banking, which is, I suppose, what I was reading about, was pretty toxic. I, I know people, I've later learned more about it, but at the time, you know, I'd read about how bankers behaved, and I thought, man, I like how they make a lot of money, and I like the things that they do. I think they're valuable, largely, but I wouldn't be a good fit in that culture. Right. So I thought about, how do I work on the kinds of deals that fascinate me and make a living for my family, but stay in my own, stay within my own comfort zone. You know, my own, I don't want to do things uncomfortable, uncomfortable with culturally, morally, ethically. Sure. And uh, it seemed to me that being a lawyer was more like being a referee than a player. And it's still part of the game. I'll still see it and love it. But I don't have to, um, I'm going to help my clients be ethical and moral. I'm going to be the guideline, guard, guardrail on that. So that's, that was my thinking going into law school. And, um, that's a great analogy, say, by the way. Right. I don't think I've ever heard a lawyer say it's like being a referee and use that analogy successfully. But you pulled it off, man. I love it. <laughs> well, the learning, I would give you this, though. I mean, having lived through a financial crisis, multiple rounds sure. of layoffs at a major law firm, um, seeing lots of my law school classmates uh, caught up in the, in the turmoil of financial crisis and lots of my banking clients caught up in that um, both banking and law in financial services are pretty cutthroat and pretty, com- or at least competitive. And um, I, I would say that the, and you can have tough cultures in either kind of institution, a bank or a law firm. So I, I think maybe I was a little um, oversimplifying things, you know, naively oversimplifying that before I got to a law firm. I joined one that had very strong culture that I liked, but I know that there are places that are no different from any investment bank and where the the cost of success, the moral cost of success is no different than the moral cost of success, success at any financial institution. And so, and likewise, there are financial institutions where great people win. Right. And, you know, a good, the good guy wins. And so I, uh, I think my distinction was, it, 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 that's why I went to law. I thought it was true. I would say that it's more what you make of it. All these things are you experience is what you make of them. You know, yeah. I learned a lot in the Marine Corps because I wanted to, um, yeah. and I learned I learned I did this stuff in a law firm that was full of good people because I I was a good fit for them and we we worked well together. But there, there's no panacea there. There's no guarantee that going into law versus finance will give you an easier time or a less cutthroat culture or a more moral day to day. Right. And so when you when you came up with this Vimo education platform, the, the tag is that Vimo education helps colleges succeed with income share agreements at a very baseline. That sounds really complicated, but sort of talk about at a, at a very high level, what is an income share agreement in the first place and how does it help colleges or schools in general? Well, I'll, I will tell you, and I'm going to tell you a story. It's a little bit more than that question to get to the answer no, that'll help it. the answer make sense yeah do so it. as we we know on this podcast we've established i started my career in the marine corps left the marine corps practice law as a lawyer i my first work was in education finance so i was helping different kinds of 
student loan businesses, other kinds of novel education finance businesses get going or scale or get capital. I was recruited out of a law firm I started by um, Mike Cagney, the CEO and founder of SoFi, a big non-bank lender, to be an early employee. And that company was really successful. I got to see up front how a business can grow and scale with a strong management team and a strong customer focus and a good product. SoFi was successful, but in, and it was an education finance business, but it was much more finance or finance than education. So today it's, just a, it's a big finance company. Um, I think, though, that the, the problem society has then with, with higher ed is not addressed by the likes of SoFi, which comes at it from a financial services angle. There was a time when people looked at colleges, students, parents, everybody. We looked at them aspirationally. And the question we would ask looking at them is, can I afford this? Right. So that, that question, answering that question got us a student debt crisis. It got us a placement rate for graduates that's not good enough. It got us somewhat stagnant wages for them, um, for, for recent college graduates, and, you know, a lower premium to attending college. And that's caused a different question to be asked by students and parents, which is, is this worth it? Now, yeah. if you ask, is this worth it? That's a, that's a value crisis, not a debt crisis. And oh. that is a question that colleges have to answer. Yeah. Yeah, and it's but subjective, too. But do not too, have right? the tool for that. So right. now we get to income share agreements. An income share agreement is what BMO does. And it answers the question as to any school, is this worth it? An income share agreement is a contract where a school waives some or all of its tuition up front in exchange for a percent of its graduates' earnings over a defined period of time. So percent of income for a number of months with a cap on payment. So it's not there to snag lottery winners and tech billionaires. Right. Um, a cap on payment and a minimum income threshold because it's, it's, it's not there to chase people who don't have money. So it's, and the reason you do this is when a school markets to you, the schools do this is, I should say this, the reason schools do this is to help you pick the right school for you. So if you have two nursing schools and one says, I have a great television ad. I have a really aggressive boiler room. I'm going to invest a lot in marketing. Pick my school, pay up front, and we will see what happens. Hmm. And, and meanwhile, another nursing school says, look, I took all the marketing budget. I spent it on getting my nursing graduates jobs. Pick my school, and you only have to pay if you get a nursing job. Which one would you choose if you really needed to be a nurse? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Right today, the best schools are sometimes at a disadvantage. And I'm not talking about the best as in the best schools that the top 5% of, of traditional students attend. I'm talking about where adult learners attend, where veterans attend. You know, they need more than a meandering um, self-discovery. They need an early career path. And schools who serve them need to incorporate that, right? So it's not the only purpose of higher education, and it's not the only reason that society subsidizes post-secondary education, but it is a very important outcome. And some schools take responsibility for that. Some schools embrace it. They say, you know what? We know that you're looking to us to help you um, get your career started or your civilian career started. And other schools disclaim that. We yeah. think it's, we should help the ones who are offering that you know, um, 
stand out. And so we use these contracts to do it. And Vimo in, um, is the leader in this particular business. What I love about it is that you've picked a lane, right? A lot of companies don't pick a lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've been talking to Antonio Sorrento and Vimo Education. Uh, we're going to take a quick, uh, another commercial break real, real quick, Tonio. Uh, Carmen, tell us about uh, Publicize. Publicize. Today's episode of Veteran Startup is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. They offer comprehensive PR services, and Publicize becomes a member of your team and can promote multiple PR announcements monthly. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. Thank you very much, Carmen. We've been talking to uh, Tonio Di Sorrento of Vimo Education. He was just telling us about what income share agreements are, which is awesome. I think that's a great niche that you guys have identified. Now, you said something a minute ago where you talked about this isn't necessarily for people that, or they're not targeting people that don't have money. Uh, why do you think that is? Is there just a reason why this doesn't fit people that uh, are, that wouldn't uh, be able to traditionally pay or would take loans out for this? Actually, what I was saying is it does not target the top 5% of students and colleges. So uh, the most selective institutions, the value proposition is prestige. And you get that when you pay for it, right? So if Princeton charged 300 grand a year, there'd still be a lineup in order to attend. And Mm -hmm. if they wanted to charge zero, their endowment's so big that they could. Sure. Outside of that, most people attending post-secondary education want a credential that leads to a job, not just any credential. Right, And so we help schools who serve those students who need jobs. And, and so, uh, but there is not um, some exclusion based on what people have coming in. It's about, I would say that income share agreements differ from something like loans in that it's really about your future, not your past. If you have a loan, to get the loan, you have to have some past that inspires a lender to give you money. Right. But to get a, for your college or for your coding boot camp or your nursing certificate program to give you an income share agreement. They have to believe in your future. And you want that, by the way. You want them aligned with your future. And and in this process, what do you think has benefited more out of this relationship? Do you think the schools have benefited more out of this uh, this sort of uh, agreement, or is it the student that ends up ultimately uh, benefiting from, from these agreements? Or is it both? It is both groups. For slightly different reasons. Sure. So the typical school, public institution, private nonprofit, or for-profit, like a code school, their goal is to serve a certain population, and, or their mission, I should say. They have a mission. They're all mission-driven. mission, mission driven. Yep. And an institution who has the mission, whether it's from their state legislature or from their nonprofit charter, they have this charitable purpose of serving a population, and that could be adult learners, it could be traditional students, Serving more of them is good for them. Like that is their job, and they want to do it. And they want to do it without spending tons of money on boiler rooms and television ads. They want to do it by demonstrating their good outcomes. Excuse me. So now on the, the student side, in an income share agreement, if you took a school and nothing changed except we switched from tuition to income share agreements, the school may or may not change a little. I mean, you'd think that they'd be very aligned on outcomes, although – the clients we have at Vimo are schools who already care about their outcomes. You know, they're not doing that because of us. They're picking us because they already care. On the student side, we can make an income share agreement where 
on average, students pay about the same. They're paying it as a percent of future income. Mm-hmm. Um, and they some will pay a little bit more and some will pay a little bit less. That'll be progressively distributed. So the higher earners will pay more uh, than the lower earners. But the big difference to the student population is the new students. So there are students in any given program who just aren't there. The, this, you know, for a college or for a student population, this answers the question, who's not here? Sure. Um, it could be people who have exhausted all their federal student aid eligibility. It could be people who are afraid to go into debt to study something because they got burned before. Right. And telling them this isn't debt and you're not going to have to pay it if it doesn't work. Let them invest in themselves and show up to a thing when otherwise they may be afraid to or may not have the resources to. And so I, I think, you know, if you had 80 students before you, you uh, in some certificate program that leads to good employment, you might get that. There might be 20 new students in that program after a switch to income share agreements, which, again, helps the school fulfill its charitable purpose or its government purpose. And it helps the, the 20 people who are there get the chance now to upskill and get a better job. And, th- and they're doing it at a school that is better for them, right? Not just the one who marketed harder. Right, right. So uh, my question, uh, you know, this being a veteran-focused show, how does this supplement, say, somebody that has a GI Bill, right? How would, this, how would they be able to use an income share agreement if they also have, uh, you know, the GI Bill to supplement some of their, their college cost expenses? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Um, this comes up with one of our clients. One of Emo's clients is Norwich University. It is the second oldest military academy in the country, private institution in Vermont, um, the birthplace of ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps. Mm-hmm. And I served um, with multiple Norwich graduates in the Marine Corps. I know that they're all over the Army and other in the Air Force and Navy. And so... Norwich is a VMO client. They use income share agreements to help their students. And they found that under the current GI Bill, which is very generous, we know, and I think everybody's really grateful for that, a lot of active duty and or, or recently departed, uh, recently separated veterans have given their GI Bill benefit to a spouse or other dependent. So mm-hmm. a child partner of the service member is using the GI Bill benefit. And that transferability is really great for their families. But that means now that the veteran is needing to complete something without completed credential as part of their transition to civilian life without access to the GI Bill. And they're using tuition assistance maybe, but there's a gap. And so at Norwich, they use, um, and we'll be expanding this program, but income share agreements fill a gap for veterans, particularly who have gifted their or bestowed their GI Bill benefit on a dependent so that they can themselves um, share risk with the school and not go into debt for something that might not work for them. That's awesome. I, that's so, a great program. Tony, I have a, a question. Now, what happens to a student who does not get a job immediately or, or uh, let's say it takes them a year? Or they don't go back to the workforce. Uh, let's say it's a woman and she has a baby and decides, I want to stay home with my kid. But then they've gone through your program and had this uh, income shared agreement. So, Carmen, the question is, what happens if people are going about their lives 
and for whatever reason, do not have income. Yes. And in an income share agreement with Vimo and any of our school partners, that person doesn't owe anything. So if you, if you have an income share agreement, there's a minimum income threshold and there's a set number of payments. If you had 48 monthly payments to make, as long as you're earning over $40,000, there might be a maximum time window of 60 months, or maybe in that case, 72 months. A 72 months, so six years on a four-year payment period over which you can make those four years with the payments. So if you are unemployed for two or three months, you just owe nothing those months, and you'll make payments later. And the school will share that risk with you and you know eat the time value of money on your delayed payments. Um, if you had chronic unemployment or had left the workforce voluntarily to raise a family and never earned again, your obligation would extinguish after the five years or out of the six years after uh, 72 months. So 48 months for your income share agreement initially, extendable another two years, just in case you go to grad school or have periodic disruptions in employment to make things fair between you and your school. And then beyond that, it goes away. And that is very different from how loans behave. You know, as you know, with a loan, because of negative amortization, the loan itself can grow and and in some cases never end. You know, that's where you read about grandparents making student loan payments or people about to retire still making student loan payments, sitting members of Congress and the Senate um, still having student loan payments. Uh, The income share agreements VMOS school clients do can't lead to that. It's such interesting. an interesting. You 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 are genuinely disrupting this space in such a profound way. And you, it, what was what was the thought behind this initially? Like, what, was anybody else doing something like this, or or thinking about student debt in this lens? I I think this idea is old. Yeah. But we are the first to use it this way. So That's in incredible. private practice as a lawyer, I probably had six clients try this. Um, we're really standing on their shoulders in terms of know-how and technology of an income share agreement. Yeah. The most fortunate that we are not, we're not the first mover, we're not the second, we're more like the seventh or eighth mover in income share agreements. But despite that somewhat extensive history of people trying this, they've all pivoted or failed will fail to scale um, prior to Vimo. And the difference is, in my view, they didn't have the right customer. Sure. It is too easy to say student loans are bad, income share agreements are good, so pick an income share agreement. That's an, that You can say that to a student, and they can totally get that. But what do you tell an investor? You know, How do you get money as inexpensively as lo- loan money? from the capital markets and get it in students' hands. You really can't because the income share agreements are valuable in a way that loans are not, right? We, there are some benefits to income share agreements that the three of us here can intuit. Like we can feel, would it be great sure. if it couldn't negatively amortize? Would it be great if you didn't have to pay anything if you weren't um, working? Right. You know, wouldn't it be great if payments were progressively distributed instead of regressively distributed across a, a pool of students or graduates? But um, there is not enough value in merely replacing that, you know, to compensate for the additional risk to investors. And 
it's hard to communicate the value of how do you price that value right for mm-hmm. for students and for students when you're a student you're thinking I'm not going to be one of the low earning ones I'm going to do great I'm, I'm everybody's above average when they first start right so how do you make it valuable enough to make it fair for investors because it is riskier than a loan sure. for investors and the answer here is you got to pick the right customer if instead of using income share agreements to help people pick a way for paying, use income share agreements to help people choose a school. And that way, people who are serious about jobs are opting into schools who are serious about jobs. And that way, with performance data, I mean, have you ever heard of schools putting up um, job placement data that's later debunked because it was based on some thinly reported, you know, self-reported survey? Right. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, if Vimo is counting what happened to your graduates, because we are the ones who verify income and report data back to the school, you can no longer plead ignorance. There is no more puffery coming from our clients about what their outcomes were, right? So, right. If, so if that's valuable, and we think it's very valuable, then there is a surplus of value created in a system like that. And that is how we're able to get capital to help either from the college itself or other kind of schools from the schools themselves or from outside market participants to make sure that students still get a really good deal yeah. on the income share agreements. So here's something that's really interesting about this whole entire thing. At its core, this is still a two-sided marketplace. So how do you solve that in that you're trying to get schools who are then going out to try to get uh, students, I mean, you're not in. You're not. It's an indirect two-sided market. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's not. You're not out there selling to students, but you're you're getting them to understand what it is, so that they that when the schools um, sort of take on this um, investment, if you will, um, th- there's this buy-in from both sides. H- how do you, how have you been able to solve that and add value for both sides? Well, that's a really good question, question, Josh, because we haven't we haven't solved it yet. Um, so we're asking ourselves that right now. I would say that we have been good at Nemo at explaining to schools how this can help them. And we've relied on the schools to communicate about it themselves to students. So at Nemo, we haven't marketed to students. We don't have students. We don't, they're, they're not our customers, students. The schools are our customers. We communicate to schools, and we let them communicate their own value proposition to students. And we're fortunate that uh, most of our school clients are are succeeding at communicating about this but we haven't given them every tool we can we haven't really set them up to win enough so we need to do more of that at vimo and we need to talk more about the benefits not per se of income share agreements but of schools that are aligned with their students right. schools that are transparent about their outcomes of schools that accept responsibility for um the value proposition that they're the stand behind the value proposition they have, you know, and, and every school, it's not, it's not prestige for every school and it's not recreational purposes. That's not the value of every school, right? And it's not medical school acceptance. Those are all things that BMO cannot measure and that income share agreements don't change. However, the 88% of students and parents, according to Gallup, who are looking for career paths out of their education, this is the thing. And, uh, uh. yeah, it makes sense. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's um, I can imagine a, a a challenge right now. Uh, so I'm glad you clarified who the customer was because, um, you know, Josh um, alluded how it could be two sides, but um, the focus is the the colleges then. Yeah, and the and the other part of that is right, Carmen. Like, if, if a school, say for example, you know, that they adopt Vimo as a, as an option, but mm-hmm. the school sort of sits on it, right? There, Vimo doesn't have any power really to then go to their students and say, right. "Hey, you know, your school's offering this as a program. You should get in on this." Uh, but you know, to to uh, to Tonio's point earlier, like if if he gives the schools more uh, tools in their toolbox. They feel much more confident about adding that as a service and being more upfront about how how it could be valuable for their students. But you know that that's definitely a huge challenge because as companies grow and they try to get this you know this critical mass of customers, uh, you you try to control what you can, and when you can't, boy, it's a helpless feeling. Yes, definitely. Yeah. A good uh, so time to do our uh, third another, ad break. Another ad break? Sure. We're going to do uh, support for today's episode. It comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. You may not realize it, but you already have the one thing that sets your business apart, a phone. And for small businesses like yours, nothing is more valuable than real human interaction. It's why two out of three mobile web searches for those ready to buy and in a phone call to a business. Visit callruby.com forward slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code startupruby. Tell them Gar- Carmen and Josh sent you. So we've been talking to Tonio Di Sorrento uh, of Vimo Education, this wonderful platform that you guys... Uh, I, I feel like an expert now, Tonio, by the way, of income share agreements. And I'm going to go <laughs> tell everybody, by the way, just so you know. Um, That's great. <laughs> but uh, you know, we have about 15 minutes left. I want to dive into sort of learnings, things that you've learned along the way. So as an early entrepreneur figuring this out, what do you think was the hardest thing in those very early days? I mean, I get you guys still pretty early, but in those very early days, what was the hardest thing for you guys to figure out? Oh, boy. I think there are, well, there are inputs to the success of this business that are hard to assemble yeah. in general. One is people. I'm very fortunate that I got to observe the human capital strategy at SoFi as it was scaling and mimic it largely sure. by my co- I have three co-founders, and without this, those three co-founders, we wouldn't have a company. We wouldn't have a, something that colleges can see as a peer organization and trust uh, with their students and money. So I think human capital, I, I saw that one coming, but there were two other ones that were um, also hard and, and that I did not totally see coming. So I just said, selling to, co- selling to colleges is hard. Yep. The one, I mean, ed tech... The knock-on education technology isn't that it's not valuable to society to do it better. The knock is that it's really hard to sell the schools, and, and it's hard to sell in higher ed, and it's hard to do anything disruptive or transformative in higher education. You know, we have nonprofits and public institutions that run on basically infinite time horizons. They've all been here longer than any of the stocks in the S&P 500, or maybe, you know, not, not, not exactly that, but... They've all been here a really long time. They're going to be here a really long time. Their employees stay there a long time mm-hmm. and will have to own any mistakes they make. Whereas if we make them marginally more successful, they don't all get a bonus and retire, right? So it's uh, my customers are not hedge fund managers mm-hmm. or you know, the sort of thing where get the idea right one time and they, they do great and it makes up for all the mistakes they make. In fact, every 
mistake they make sticks around and causes them to get grief from their leadership for years. So we are moving into higher education where, now that said, there are a number of people and institutions who really want to improve and they want to stand out. And Vimo has had to find them. In some cases, we're lucky and they found us, but we've had to go find them. And then we've had to meet their needs. And so we were talking about selling higher education. You asked me for like the three, the two big things. I mean, one is colleges are hard to sell to. We had to learn here what were the things we had to knock down, the objections or the fears, stated or unstated, that would get us a chance on a college campus. And that one of those is reference clients among other colleges. Well, that's tough, right? That's, that's a chicken and egg thing. Well, I would hire you if another college has hired you. I mean, if every college said that, we'd be toast, right? So we were really fortunate we had an early client in Purdue University that was willing to go first. Um, we also, though, are often asked, who do you work with in my state? And so we, we find that concentrating our, our efforts in certain states is really important. And we also find that colleges want to, um, they care a lot about privacy and security. Sure. So we've had to really bolster that. Like our technology platform is more about meeting privacy and security needs for college CIOs and institutional investors than it is for like any particular functionality. The second big thing that we've learned is the difficulty, and I, we're over it, but the difficulty of uh, funding a business model like this. So I have a business model at Vimo where I'm asking colleges to wait to get paid until their graduates have good earnings, right? So we're saying college, right. school client, why don't you wait to get paid until your <laughs> graduates have earnings? Well, and we're creating a category, by the way, right? This category didn't exist. Well, if nobody had an income share agreement problem before Vimo, they also did not have an income share agreement budget before Vimo. Right. So, and I'm telling them, you should wait to get paid. The right thing to do here is you wait till your grads get money. That's fair. That's alignment. Well, guess what I got to do? I got to wait to get paid until graduates have jobs. Right. At Vimo, we don't get cash flow out of these clients, out of these income share agreement programs until graduates get jobs. Now, hey, if it's a three-week, or I'm sorry, a three-month code school, okay, there's some cash flow sometime this calendar year coming out of it. If I'm packaging a, a fall semester junior at Purdue University, you know, they get two academic years plus a grace period, maybe six months after they graduate, before the first payment. Oh, wow. That yeah. is really challenging. You want to talk about holding your breath as you grow a company, right? Now, we are the, – the, so I think a huge challenge for us that I didn't appreciate how difficult was it would be with selling investors on that business model. Right. And, and convincing a management team, you know, uh, investors – basically the, the, the ecosystem around Vimo, all of our stakeholders to be patient and wait for that. Because even today, you know, our cash flows are not impressive. However, we're helping a lot of students at a bunch of schools that we're really proud about. And if we wait, that cash is coming. Um, we're over that now, but I think I had no appreciation for how difficult that would be versus something where I could monetize up front. Imagine you're selling subscription software and you can say, hey, I'll give you 50% off if you pay three years in advance. You know, you can get more than one year's worth of, um, of your revenue up front in, in, in some other startups who also have colleges as clients. And so I'm, I have a, a relatively less attractive business model compared to other ed tech businesses. And we had to work hard to overcome that, that disadvantage. Now, now that we have, though, I would say it's quite an advantage because the colleges perceive this as something they don't have to pay for out of pocket. 
And if you wanted to compete with me, you're going to have to find out how to help colleges without charging them up front. So wow. how, do you, well, how do you do that, right? So I, I've raised money. I've gone out and tried to raise capital from investors. And, uh, and how do you go into an investor meeting, especially in those early days, and you say, hey, just trust we're going to uh, you know, have – we're going to be cash flow as soon as these gr- people graduate school and go out and get jobs. We need capital to grow this company. Uh, how do you do that, especially as a first-time founder? I mean – I, I can't tell you that I I can't take credit for this. So let's start with that. Like sure. it happened, and I was the co-founder and CEO, and I am a first-time uh, CEO and a first-time fundraiser. Yeah. Um, and it took everything all of us had at BMO to miracle through this. I would say first goes to the um, the seed investors who who saw something here and took risk on us, and that includes. Um, I'll just name a few to thank them, like Lauren Abney, University Ventures, Task Force X Venture Capital. Love Brandon, by the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. Task Force X Capital, um, Roots D6 Ventures, Next Gen Venture Partners. There are a bunch of in- individuals and investors who took really wild risk yeah. funding this ahead of those cash flows. But I think once we were established, so once we had a couple of clients, and we were, I think if you watch the post-secondary education space, you can perceive that this is going to happen. Once it gets into a school segment, for example, code schools, there is no stopping it. They can't, it can't be unseen. Students, it's wildly popular with students. They've, oh, they do pick the school that does this in a, in a school segment. And so then your question is, questions are, how long will it take? And can Vimo win that thing? And and so now we're in, we're in, I think it's going to take a while, but can we win it is yes, we are winning it. You know, we have a hundred percent market share on the college side of this and um, our competitors in the skills-based training area, the code schools just haven't been able to catch us, you know, in terms of the um, school client roster we have. Sure. So I think I had to tell that story and I'm not a great storyteller. I need to get better at it. But and I, I actually <laughs> you've been doing fine the last hour. <laughs> my my well, I say like a lot of stakeholders in Vimo have invested in helping me improve at that. That's but, great. Um, we had to tell a story and paint. I had to paint a picture of a future. Maybe it's five years from now. Maybe it's ten years from now. But this inevitability that how people choose colleges and how people pay for them will change. And that we're going to cause it, and we're going to stay on top of that thing. And once you believe that, then our valuation today, if you're buying my stock, has nothing to do with my um, meager cash flows. It has every, at this moment, yeah. and it's everything to do with the massive discount you are getting to the future incredible value right. that we are creating. That's awesome. Right? So whatever we most worth in five years, I guarantee my series A <laughs> price is a discount, you know, a great discount yeah. to that. And you yeah. just got to do the math. Like how likely is that to happen? How long? Yeah. But yeah. Oh, one more thing though, because it goes to fundraising, right? I recognize that people listening to this may be trying to raise money. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're, um, we, we've, we've closed, uh, I closed $7.4 million in a, in institutional seed money. Um, and we've raised awesome. additional capital. We haven't been able to talk about, but the, um, and we can't quite talk about, but I think part of this goes to founder investor fit. Yep. 
and different people, you know, have belong. These are partnerships, and, and it's all people. I was really fortunate that I found when I was less of a storyteller, more of a detail-oriented person. I found investors who who were entertained by that. You know, who said, "Well, that's great. I love founders know details." Some investors hate that stuff. They don't want to know details. They want to. They would say, "Tell me a great story." You know, just tell me the highlights. And if you tell that story well, that's what they want to buy. Yeah. And um, and you know, a detail-oriented investor hates hates a shallow founder. That's not a complimentary word to use, but like hates a <laughs> a show person as a founder, yeah. and they love a. A, a super COO. I think, you know, a business in the end does need people who can tell a story and who can disengage a little bit from the machine and operate on top of the machine, not in the machine. So I've, I'm, and I'm in the process of becoming that. That's awesome. But, awesome. Uh, in terms of seed funding, <laughs> go ahead. No, no, that's it, awesome. I, it's it, inspiring. Yeah. And we only have uh, a couple of minutes left. I always ask this question because I, I think it's a, a good question to ask. And Carmen's going to cringe when I ask this. But, uh, you know, every founder has that moment where they've fucked up, right? They've just <laughs> like, oh, man, I, I blew it. I'm not going to do that again. What do you think was the one thing that, because as you said, we have people that are listening to the show that are probably entrepreneurs, right? They want to be an entrepreneur. Uh, what do you think is that one thing that you fucked up that you're not going to do again? Ooh. <laughs> well, that, the, the, I think there's this, actually, you gave me two criteria. I'm going to give a third. So the two criteria is <laughs> I, I messed up. Number one, number two, I won't do it again. Number three, I'm willing to talk about it, right? So uh, <laughs> I'm going to put it on yeah. your podcast. There you go. <laughs> I think, and do it under a couple minutes. <laughs> yeah, 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 really quickly. This is tough because okay, the the list of the first two things is well. Yeah, the list of what I what I can say that's actually helpful and doesn't uh, hurt anybody uh, who I uh, care about is uh, shorter. I think. I have, on more than one occasion, I'll give you a, a couple good ones. On more than one occasion, I've, I've hired a person or you know brought a person on as a partner and and let it go too far, like when they were clearly a bad fit. And so I felt like, oh boy, you know they just need more chances or whatever. And when when I really know my my management style as a my civilian management style is maneuver unit leadership, you know, not I'm not here to be your uh, fire team leader or your you know your personal coach here. I'm here to be the battalion commander and I want you to attack. Like I want to give an intent, not specific commands or orders. I don't want to tell you turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right. I want you to just run. I want you to go win your lane. And, uh, and so people who, who don't work that way are really bad fits to work for me um, in any level of seniority. And they're bad fits at BMO. We need people who have a lot of initiative, who also have good judgment and who can work on intent. On, on a commander's intent basis. And I have, when I've recognized that somebody wasn't a good fit for that on a number of occasions, I've, I've not, uh, parted ways with them quickly enough. So that's one big one. Another one is I, I've at times tried to be the one man band, you know, doing lots of things at the corporate, uh, with corporate finance, legal, all that stuff. Um, try to spend all the money we had at BMO on stuff that actually faced customers and students. So schools and students, Imagine they give you a million bucks to build an airfield. You put up a golf, golf course and ask them for another million bucks, right? Because I still need to put our radio control tower up. Like, that that's like an Air Force about the Air Force, right? Yeah, it's an Air Force <laughs> joke from, from Marine. And the Marines would be like digging in holes and like build the air, you know, airfield and give the money back. Yep. So, so I was trying to be that guy here with my seed capital and really um, a, like a one-man band, like doing everything myself at the corporate level 
first year and a half, two years of the business. And when you're doing the thing yourself with your nose right in the detail, and this is every seed stage co-founder or founder, because to found a thing, you've got to be a product person a little bit. Um, you can't see it then. Like, you know, you, you can't see the, the actual forest. All you can see are the trees are cutting down. And um, that makes you a kind of a bad CEO or a bad director on a board. Yeah. And my board had to call me out really hard once <sighs> because I was doing a major partnership. Uh, and I was both negotiating the thing and also like drafting all the documents and <laughs> running black lines. And, and I was oh, I was missing major issues that should have been discussed. And, and they basically had to catch it as I was trying to execute the thing. Oh, man. And say, hey, we're going to make you look like an idiot because you are an idiot. We got to redo it. <laughs> and I, I struggled with that, but they were right. Yeah. And um, so I think that's the thing that every seed stage person needs to think about. I agree. I agree. Tonio, uh, we got to go, but thank you so much for your time. People can find uh, Vimo at Vimo.com. Uh, Tonio DeSorrento, we thank you so much thank for your you, time. Thank you, Tonio. You've been listening thank you, Josh. to the. Thank you, Thank yeah. you. You've been listening to the Veterans Founder Podcast in Startup Radio Network, the network that brings inspiration and education to startups and entrepreneurs around the globe. Tune in again next week and every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Listen, learn, and get inspired. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.